Welcome to another distinct nostalgia by MIM. Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home. We're celebrating great British sitcom again now and a show that began exactly 40 years ago this year. It ran for a very long time and seemed to capture the imagination of generations. Set in a real holiday camp, Heidi High. I say, Heidi High. Hody ho you know how it went, was created by the same people behind Dad's Army and It Ain't Half Hot Mum and was based on David Croft and Jimmy Perry's actual life experiences. It starred great comedy actors like Paul Shane, Ruth Maddock, Sue Pollard and Geoffrey Holland. Geoffrey's been chatting to Ashley about the story behind Heidi High and the rest of his own amazing career. Enjoy. When I first met Jimmy Perry and David Croft back in 1975, when I was asked to be a part of the Dad's Army stage show, uh, which was being directed by a man I'd worked with at the theatre, so he knew I could be quite useful to them in various different character roles. Uh, It was with the TV cast, most of them, and they wanted a chorus of boys and girls who could also play characters in and out, you know, in various sketches and stuff. And I went along to audition for that, and to cut a long story short, I got the job. Uh, I made Perry and Croft, Croft laugh, uh, and uh, as a result of that, I, uh, I got the job, and I, I did a, a whole year in the, in the Dad's Army stage show, uh, did six months at the Shaftesbury Theatre in, in London, at the West End, and then we toured the country for six months in the, in the spring of 76. Uh, in the meantime, after that, I did a, David asked me, again, because I was probably quite useful to him, he asked me to do a guest, couple of guest spots in um, a couple of episodes of Are You Being Served as a customer in the, in the shop. Uh, and then I did a couple of it ate half hot mums for him as well later, for him and Jimmy. Uh, one of which I always think to this day was my audition, my unofficial audition for Heidi High, because it was a fabulous character. He was a sort of multi-talented uh, idiot, basically, an RAF uh, aircraftsman who it was totally gormless. It was a wonderful role to play. And he could do all these wonderful things that all the, the rest of the, the, the cast of the concert party could do, but do it better. He could sing opera, he could he could play trumpet, he could do a vent act, he could play classical piano, you know, and I did I had it with a lot of help from my friends because all of that was recorded and I mined to it, you see. Uh, and at the end of the day, it was a fabulous little comedy act which took about 10 minutes and... Uh, when Heidi High came up a couple of years later, they wrote Spike with me in mind. So really, I sort of proved myself to them by then, I think. It took about four, four years, because the, the, the pilot of Heidi High was made in October 79. It wasn't aired until January the 1st, 1980. So it is actually 40 years this year since Heidi High was first aired. Yeah. Well, that, that's interesting. Let's go back a little bit then to that um, your appearance in the Dad's Army stage show. So, who, which part did you get in that? Who did you play in the Dad's Army stage show? I was in the chorus, literally, but uh, all the boys and girls. We were, we were known as the Home Front Company because we were all dressed. There was a, a, a miner, a Bevin boy. There was a bus conductress, a nurse. I played a fireman. There was a policeman. You know, all the all the reserved occupations. That's the expression. The reserved occupations. So we were all dressed as them. Uh, and I was understudy as well to uh, to Pike and to Walker, 
uh, James Beck had already died, but uh, they put Walker back into the show because it was such a good foil for Captain Mannering. And uh, it was played in the stage show by John Barden, who was best known for, for Jim, I think, in, in EastEnders. He married Dot in EastEnders. Um, bless him, he's no longer with us now, sadly, but uh, he, played, he played Walker. And when we did the tour six months later, he'd done the West End, but he, John didn't want to do the tour. He got other stuff to do. He'd had enough, so he pulled out. And then Jimmy Perry rang me at home one day and said, uh, John's not doing it. And as I'd learned it and was covering it anyway, he said, would I like to take over as Private Walker? Would I? I was absolutely over the moon. And when I, I did my first outing with it, and standing there with Captain Mannering, my rifle, and Captain Mannering's platoon, and the curtain went up with that massive round of applause every night. You know, we were all standing there, Mannering's at the salute, and we're all there with our guns behind him, behind a Union Jack, you know. Um, the tears were running down my face. It was just so moving because I, I was one of Captain Mannering's platoon. You know, it was just fantastic feeling. And I had the most wonderful time doing that. But a difficult thing to do as well, I would presume you were quite nervous about it because people have an impression of the character on telly, don't they? And of course, he was no longer with us. Yes. But Jimmy was convinced that I could pull it off. He said, because, uh, I don't know, he said, you've got the right sort of warmth, he said, that uh, Jimmy Beck had. And so that's why I'd be lucky to do it. So it was very nice to hear. Uh, but it, it worked. It, I was very nervous at first. Of course I was, you know. But when I knew when, once I knew where the laughs were, I was much more at home with it, you know. It's good fun. It was a real, really great job to have that. And did you get a chance to, uh, to do Pike as well then? I did play Pike once. I played Pike in the West End for, uh, on a Wednesday matinee when Ian Lavender, I forget why, he was un suddenly unavailable uh, for this matinee. And they, they warned me, they rang me, said, you're on for Pike. Are you all right with that? I said, yes, fine, I know it, I know it. And, I <laughs> and there I was with the hat, with the little spiky bits at the side. I put the scarf on, you know, and I went there. I played, I played Pike to my best ability. And I, got, I was very proud that I got all the words out in exactly the right order. But I didn't get a single laugh all afternoon from that matinee audience because they were so, so deeply unforgiving that I wasn't Ian Lavender. You know, and they weren't going to let me go. The only laughs I did get were from the kids, the boys and girls behind me, sniggering up their sleeves because I wasn't getting laughs from the audience. I thought that was hysterical. But it was, it was a daunting uh, prospect that, that particular day. I went to see Ian Lavender's one-man show. He did he did a show at the Edinburgh Fringe called uh, Don't Tell Him Pike. And uh, he, went, he went there one day. And when he got the scarf out of the bag, he brings, he's got the scarf, you know, it's his scarf. And he took the scarf out very reverently. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, this is the scarf. And he said, there is only one other actor in this country who has ever worn this scarf. And he's sitting there in the second row. There is Geoffrey Holland. He pointed me out to the audience. So I stood up and took a bow. I got a nice round of applause. But it's true, I'm the only other actor who's ever worn that scarf. <laughs> so it was a, it was a, a, a lovely moment. We'll talk definitely uh, a bit more about Heidi High in a moment, because obviously that was a huge thing for you and, and, uh, and, and a massive sitcom. But uh, I can't not sort of press you a little bit on how you're being served, because sadly, very few of the cast are around anymore. So an insight into how you're being served is quite interesting. You did two episodes. Tell us about how you're being served, because for me, I, you know, I'll put it on every other day. I, I, it's one of those things that just makes me laugh instantly. Molly Sugden and John Edwards in particular. You know, tell it, what was it like on the set of How You Being Served? 
was fantastic fun. It really was great fun. You know, there were such lovely people. And I've worked with Trevor Bannister a lot since then in, in various theatre comedies, you know, shows and, and so on stage. So I got to know Trevor very well. Uh, but John I knew also extremely well. And, uh, you know, he was very funny and very, very lovely to be around. He was such fun. Uh, I mean, the, the camp the camp persona was, wasn't quite as exaggerated off stage as it was on, if you like. But uh, it was it was a lovely fellow. Very, 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 and so was Molly. She was a lovely lady. It was very, uh, very, very, very nice indeed to to be asked to do uh, an iconic show like that for me because I, I, I never expected to be able to, to, to get on and do it. Two very um, different characters in two very different episodes. I played a hippie in the, in the first time I did, I did it uh, because Mr. young Mr. Grace wanted to bring the shop up to date. So he tried to dress all the staff as hippies because he thought that was you know, the, the modern thing to do. And I, I walked on in, in this huge Afro wig, you know, and a big moustache and beads and a caftan that reached the floor. You know, I was all peace man and all that. And Frank Thornton was dressed exactly like me as Captain Peacock in the same sort of caftan and big Afro wig. It was ridiculous fun. It was, it was huge fun. But in, in the second episode I did, uh, it was a couple of years later, and Alfie Bass uh, was in as the senior um, salesman, he took over from um, uh, Arthur Ruff, who uh, sadly passed away. Mr. Mr. Uh, Granger, Mr. Granger, who died, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Now, I think he, I think he, I mean, it's really sad because when I look back, I think he was a fantastic character, Mr. Granger. Well, really, was. Yeah, yeah. He used to run theatres, you know, in these younger days. He, he ran a repertory theatre for a long, long time, so he was really very, very experienced at what he did. But uh, I mean, Alfie Bass came in to take over. He was a completely different kettle of fish altogether. I, I was dressed in a blazer. I, uh, my character was called the blazer because they, you know, they didn't have a name for me, but I came in to buy a blazer uh, and they, they talked me into buying a, a sports coat instead and a Malacca walking cane and, you know, and, a, and it was all, it was very, very funny. But I, was, I spent the, the whole week in rehearsal trying to avoid Alfie Bass because he kept goosing me. I don't know what was the matter with the man, I really don't, but he, he just kept squeezing my bum all the time. And I, I said, like, well, get off, you know. <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it was just one of those things, but it was such fun. It, it was very different to the other episode I did, that's, that's for sure. But they were iconic, really iconic characters. And they were all done, presumably they were all done in front of a studio audience, weren't they? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. yeah live, with live laughter from uh, David Croft never, ever, ever used canned laughter. He wouldn't. If you if if had to do a retake, you got the retake and the audience would happily laugh again at the same funny thing and laugh even louder if you wanted them to. But uh, it, they, David never had to use canned laughter. As well as amazing TV and film nostalgia, this podcast is also home to an epic radio quiz where listeners just like you go head-to-head on their favourite TV shows and films and put their general knowledge to the test. There's a bonus point if you can sing the theme tune, but I know you're not going to, are you? Skippy, 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 the bush kangaroo, is all I can remember. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that earns you a point. Yeah, I'll go for that. The fifth season of the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz is almost here, and it needs you. Prisoner Cell Block... Cell Block B. Prisoner Cell Block H... Oh. Simply choose your favourite TV show or film 
and get in touch at distinctnostalgia.com. Have a go at three British films. Just have a guess. Oh, Whistle Down the Wind, Carry On Up the Kyber. Um, no, this is rubbish. I'm sorry. No, I don't <laughs> that, know. That, they're not bad attempts, actually. <laughs> and the two leading minds from across the month compete head-to-head in the final for a coveted Distinct Nostalgia mug. It's almost like a trophy. The Mind of the Month quiz. What kind of programme was The Smoking Room? Oh, I've never heard of it. I don't know oh. if I can accept that. Coming this autumn. That's another cracker, isn't it? They uh, always are. <laughs> Only here. Hello and welcome to The Likely Dads, a new series that looks at parenting from the paternal perspective. I'm always wary of people who plan kids. If your life's that structured, <laughs> stay away from me. We're not going to get on. <laughs> a brand new show from the team behind Distinct Nostalgia. I'm Tim Vincent and each week I'll be joined by my fellow Likely Dads, Mick Ferry and Russell Kane, as well as a series of special guests to discuss different aspects of fatherhood. When a man has an urge to have a, a child, it's not spoken about much. Women sort of own this area. <laughs> We're sort of open it was going to be like the old films I watch where I'd just have a pipe and I'd be in a study. You just go, you're going to see your father now for 10 minutes. <laughs> Hello, children, what have you been up to today? I'm not interested. All right, off to bed. <laughs> An MIM production for BBC Radio 4. We hope you'll join us and subscribe to The Likely Dads on BBC Sounds. Three men, one sketch show, not enough time. What are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm just recording our new promo for Distinct Comedy. What's with the voice? I, I, you know, I just wanted to make it all big and exciting, build up the tension. Build the tension for what? For listening. It's a sketch show, not a blockbuster film. You just need to say something like, Hey, we're the imaginary people. Listen to our sketch show on distinct comedy. You might like it, if you're into that kind of thing. Huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's all right, actually. Oh, well, you better be quick before the time runs out. The imaginary people. Every Monday on Distinct Comedy. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and at distinctnostalgia.com. Well, of course, Are You Being Served lasted for 13, 14, 15, about, I think it was 1972 until about 1985, so it's about 13 years it was on. Uh, <laughs> year after year, there was a new series. You know, it was, uh, it was brilliant. It was fantastic. And uh, as I say, it's still very entertaining to this day. Now, so, Heidi High, you told us the build-up. So you were, you were sort of, um, you know, you were be, they were testing you out for four years, really, basically, weren't they? And then they were four-year audition period for me, really. You know. And so, yeah. when did so tell us a bit about a bit about the actual Heidi High? When did you know about that, and how did they, you know, did, what, how did you get that part specifically? I mean, did you did you were there other people up for it at that point or not? I say that they wrote Spike really with me in mind. And then back in May, I think it was around about May, I've still got the, the piece of paper that I wrote it down when the, Jimmy Perry himself rang me up and said, we're doing this new sitcom uh, about a uh, holiday camp uh, in, the, in the set in the 50s. Uh, and uh, we'd like you to play a character we've written called Spike Dixon, who is, you know, the aspiring young camp comedian. Uh, who's not very talented, but he's full of enthusiasm basically based on Jimmy Perry himself from his days in the Butlins holiday camps when he was a student at RADA. He used to go in the summer holidays and be a redcoat. So basically it was it was all the stuff, because they only wrote about what they knew about, you see. Jimmy was in the home guard. He was the 15-year-old in the home guard before he was called up. Then he went to Burma and ran a concert party in the Burmese jungle. So again, there's Adolf Hopkins. David was out in Burma serving in the army, although they never met at that time. And then later on, David used to um, produce plays at Butlin's holiday camps when they 
were doing that that kind of thing in the 50s. So they, bo they both knew all these characters. They were based on people they'd met and worked with. There was the... Uh, a children's entertainer who was a drunk who hated killed kids. He couldn't stand kids, but he was, you know, he stuck with them. And there was the ballroom dancing champions who hadn't won a cup since 1943. You know, they were, they were so, it's the only place. Because basically all those entertainment staff uh, were failures in their own field, really. Even Ted Bovis, you know, camp comic, he was, he was king, of the, king of the hill in the, in the holiday camp. But, you know, out of season, he was demonstrating potato peeler, peelers in uh, the Ideal Home Exhibition, you know, things like that. Um, Gladys Pugh, you know, useless, ex-tennis player, but, you know, organised in Chief Yellowcoat, loved, loved all the, the, the pomp of being Chief Yellowcoat. And then, of course, Geoffrey Fairbrother, lovely Simon Cadell, came along as a university professor trying to do the job of a holiday camp entertainment manager. You know, and it was all the, the, the camaraderie between the characters who would never normally have met in real life. It was like the Dazami home guard men, you know? They, they would never have socialised in real life had it not been for them under the common umbrella of the home guard. And that is where characters who never meet, that's where the comedy is when they interact, and that was, that was how clever they were. They didn't write jokes, they wrote situations. And uh, well, that, that's what they, obviously it was with Heidi Hyde, all those wonderful characters. And, and were you all familiar with each other beforehand? The only person I think I knew before, beforehand was Barry Howard, who played Barry Stewart Hargreaves, the ballroom dancer. I'd worked with him in the theatre, uh, and I knew he was uh, John Inman's ex-partner, because he and John Inman were, were the most famous and the most brilliant ugly sisters in the pantomime world for, in, throughout the 70s. They were, they were known for it. They were the best ugly sisters ever at that, that time. And then, of course, when John became famous in, um, in Are You Being Served, but before Heidi High started, um, Barry was sort of left out on a little bit uh, because John was required to play Dame on his own when he became famous from the, the programme. And Barry had to play ugly sister with various other people. And of course, when Barry's opportunity in Heidi High came up, he was back on form again, you know. But uh, that's, yeah, it was... Um, so so, they, so he, was the only, he was the only person that you knew of? I've met Simon Cadell before, because he'd worked with my, um, my first wife, my, my ex-wife, uh, in, in the theatre of Coventry when I was doing my rep days there. That's where I met her, and then he, he worked with her. So I'd, I'd met him before, but we'd never worked together before. We'll talk a bit in a moment about, about how the series evolved and the characters evolved, because uh, I talked to Sue about this and she was saying how her sort of character evolved in a way and, and in a way sort of was, was they, they built on certain Sueisms, as it were, as it went along. But the, the great thing about um, Idy High was the authenticity um, in terms of the, the costumes, the location, the fact that it was filmed in an actual old holiday camp and all the rest of it. I mean, that was, that must have been brilliant to be able to, because, you know, lots of comedies and things and TV programs are set in, you know, studios and all that kind of thing. But actually to be there in what was or had been a holiday camp, that yes. was quite special. Well, it was special because it was one of Warner's 
hominy camps. It's no longer there now. They bulldozed it years ago and built a housing estate on where it stood. But we have it on film, and it was it was one of Warner's hominy camps. And we used to move in at the end of September when their summer season had finished. And uh, we used to dress it up and make it look funny. It was like an open prison. It was a terrible, terrible place. In fact, it had been, I'm told, uh, back during the early years, during the war, it had been a, an Italian prison of war, a war uh, camp, you know, d- detainment camp. And, uh, and that was, uh, again, part of the fun for David Croft because he loved all that kind of thing. Uh, but you know, we were in those rows of chalets that were genuinely tiny, little, pokey, dirty, smelly little rooms. But people still wouldn't have a wonderful holiday there. You know, I took my son when he was 11 to the camp, when it was the season was still on uh, once, but years ago. And uh, the people were in that pool having a time of their lives, you know. It's just a wonderful British thing to do, you know, a holiday camp holiday in those days. But, you know, it's, uh, it was lo- lovely. But we used to dress it up and make it look good, as I say, look like an open prison or the <laughs> I think the other thing that um, Heidi High managed to tap into at the sort of the end of the 70s, early 80s was, if I remember right, I was only a little boy at the time, but there was, there started to be a, a, a renewed fashion- fascination with the 50s. You know, Happy Days was on the TV. That was all about the 50s. Everyone was into the 50s again, weren't they? It was sort of a, everyone felt nostalgic for the 1950s, didn't they, at that point? Yes, we were were set basically for our first four years, uh, four series in 1959. Um, because people were still, at the time, people were still used to queuing for everything. And, they, you know, we had two sessions for dinner, two sessions for lunch in that great big dining hall. Uh, and it was still just after the war, you know, but the way people still lived their lives. And uh, they were quite happy with that. We moved on to the next year. We moved on to 1960 when Simon Cadell decided to leave. He, he decided he had enough to go on to Pastures New, various other things. And he, he said he, his goodbyes and uh, he left them, uh, left us. Uh, and then left, left Jimmy and David with a bit of a quandary, but how, how are they going to replace him? The, the, the question they were asking themselves was, do we get another character as inept as Jeffrey Fairbrother was, or do we turn the tables and do something completely different? And that's what they decided to do. They got this rather flash XRAF wing commander, uh, squadron leader, I beg his pardon. Uh, and uh, he was a bit of a, a rake and a bit of a ladies' man. And it turned Gladys Pugh's character totally upside down on, on, on her head. So instead of all the coming on, which she used to do to Jeffrey Fairbrother, she used to start having to fend him off because he was coming on to her, you know, as Clive Dempster, DFC and Bar, you know. <laughs> so that was, that was what was great fun. But the show survived that. The show was strong enough, I think, and it survived the changeover. I can see why it did, because there was a tremendous chemistry between you all. It lasted a long time. It went on for a long time. And when a series goes on for a long time, characters do have to evolve. The things do have to change, things like that. Just tell us a bit about that. Was there a fairly instant chemistry between you all? Well, there was with me and Paul, that's for sure, Paul Shane. Uh, I remember the first day I ever met him, because they cast me a spike. Uh, and they wanted to audition a couple of chaps that they got in mind uh, for Ted Bovis. They, they were really struggling uh, to find Ted Bovis. And uh, then Jimmy one night, who was watching Coronation Street, and he saw Paul Shane being, playing Alf Roberts' boss 
in uh, in Corrie, and uh, he was he went and put the kettle on for the commercial break. He rang David and said, "David, put Corrie on. Are you, are you watching? I'm not watching. Put it on." I think I think we found our Ted Bovis. So he put the telly on, and they saw him, and they both agreed. So they got Paul Shane down uh, to London to read a couple of scenes with me uh, in in the rehearsal room. Uh, and I'd been asked to go and sit in the green room with, while they chatted with Paul on his own. And then they called me in to this big, enormous rehearsal room to, uh, to, to meet Paul and to, to read a couple of scenes with him. And I walked into the room. He was standing in the middle of the floor, looking completely lost, bless him. And I stuck my hand out and I put my hand forward and said, hello, Paul, my name is Jeff. It's lovely to meet you. Uh, and he, he shook my hand and he looked at me. He looked at me a bit sideways. He sort of, he said, he have we met before? And you see, I said, no, we hadn't. If if I'd have remembered, you know, we hadn't met before. But you see, he sensed something in me that I sensed in him. At that very instant, we shook hands. There was a chemistry there between the two of us. We couldn't be more different as human beings, really, uh, size-wise, voice-wise, everything-wise. You know, I've been an actor all my life. He'd been a stand-up comic for most of his. Uh, and they were uh, reversing the roles. I was playing a stand-up comic, and he was, you know, being, being the uh, playing the leading role, if you like. Thing, and he was ooh, brown trousers type of him. It was, I think, at the time. But you know, he sensed that that chemistry, and uh, that's how it panned out. I think you know, it, it panned out in all the work we did together, all the all the series. He, he ran me Lord, oh Doctor Beeching, and all the rest of it. That's why David Croft kept us together. I think me, him and me and Sue, because you know we got on so well. And um, I mean that's just a lesson, isn't it, for for any actor? You know, whatever you're starring in, even even if even if it's a small part, make sure it's a good one because uh, there might be somebody watching you, which is what was happening with Paul that night when when, when we watched Coronation Street. People say there's no small parts; there are only small actors. You know, <laughs> it's not necessarily true, but I know what it means. You know, but it was certainly great for us with so many characters in that show. I've had mental health problems, I think, for most of my life. Suicide is sadly something which affects people from all backgrounds. My friends didn't quite understand why I was being the way I was being, so support was was pretty much non-existent. A brand new podcast brought to you by the Zero Suicide Alliance. I'm Professor Alice Roberts and this is Life Matters. Few people understand that you just actually just need to just sit and listen to what the person's saying. We do know that there are some people who tend to be more at risk than others. In our feature on the latest initiatives from around the world, we find out how three schoolgirls from Brazil have developed a suicide prevention app aimed at Generation Z. If something bad happened to me today, I'll go there and add a drop of water. We're with the team at Hollyoaks to hear how they've been showing how soap can inspire life-saving conversations among men at risk of suicide. I just feel absolutely nothing at all. Nothing, just dead. This way you get to see Darren's journey behind the scenes. He's really struggling and he doesn't know how to reach out. He doesn't know how to get help. You know, it's always been his taboo subject. Join me, Professor Alice Roberts, for the very first edition of Life Matters. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts and visit zerosuicidealliance.com for a free online awareness course that could help you save lives. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, then we'd be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. 
bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. So do you think, like Sue was saying, do you think the, do you think the characters did evolve, though? Do you, you know what I mean? Do you think there were certain things about how you all played those parts that then gave um, Jimmy and David inspiration to take those parts on in different ways? They did. They, they, they took an actor as characterization. The, the tricky bit was, um, was writing the, the first few episodes until the characters, actually, the actors had established the characters for them. But, you know, when they were writing Dad's Army about five years in, they knew exactly how Clive, Jones, uh, Clive Dunn would say Corporal Jones's lines. They knew what they were writing because they knew how they would come out of his mouth. And it was much the same with the Gaddish Pew's Welsh stuff and, uh, and all that, you know, and, and Jeffrey Fairbrothers. And, and my, they, they tried to give me a catchphrase once, which didn't really work. It was, it was uh, Spike was getting worried. He said, oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh dear! Oh dear! Oh dear! I think it worked about twice, but it, they, they cut it soon because it just—it just, it was imposed. But the best catchphrases they said they always happened by accident, and like the best one of the best they ever came up with was "You stupid boy," for Arthur Lowe, because that's what Jimmy Perry's father used to call him, "You stupid boy." You know, and they put it in once for Pike, and he got such a laugh from Arthur Lowe that he said, "Well, there we are. There's one. There's one we could use." And uh, it was much the same with, with Heidi Heim. Of course, sometimes um, catchphrases don't actually exist, do they? They just became a, become a figment of people's sort of interpretation of things. So I interviewed Thelma Barlow about playing Mavis, and everyone thinks of her as this character who always says, I don't really know, or whatever it is. And actually, that was, that was Les Dennis's creation. Yeah, Les Dennis's uh, impression of her in the Russ Abbott shows before he and Dustin went on tour together. Uh, he, he created that because it was just exactly for the character of Mavis. It was exactly right for her. And she never, she never actually said it. It's funny because a lot of the catchphrases people get known for, like James Cagney never said, you dirty rat. He never said it. <laughs> and uh, Humphrey Bogart never said, play it again, Sam. He said, play it, Sam. Play it for me. You know, he never said, play it again, Sam. And Oliver Hardy, going back to Oliver Hardy, never said, here's another fine mess you've got me into. It was always, here's another nice mess you've got me into. Always. Absolutely. Well, actually, in our interview with Thelma Barlow, she does actually end up saying um, her Les Dennis catchphrase about four or five times. So anybody <laughs> wants to listen, it's a bit of a treat, that. What about, what about your part? Obviously, you played it, played it for such a long time. I mean, it's a long time to play your role. Was it about eight or nine years, Ali? We did nine series over eight years, yeah, altogether. How did you feel about that? Because, it, you know, did you ever feel tired with it or were you I got, towards the end I got I got a little bit uh, I wouldn't say bored exactly because most of the, most of the lines that Spike had ended in comma Ted question mark like he was asking Ted how to do this what do we do now then Ted what's that about about, about Ted you know there was a lot of that going on with, with Spike and uh, and all apart from all the dressing up which was which was good fun um you know we, we used to dress me in all kinds of silly costumes. But, um, 
you know, I'd, I'd had enough. I mean, I, I wanted to stretch my muscles. And fortunately for me, when they Heidi High ended after eight years, and uh, we went on to do uh, You Rang Me Lord the following year, which for me was a, a wonderful opportunity to play a, a, a virtually a straight role, to be honest with you. Because within the comedy framework of the show, the role of James Twelvetrees, the, the snotty footman, was, was really quite the biggest snob in the house. You know, he knew his place and expected everyone to know theirs, uh, which again was, was a great device for, for comedy reactions from other people. And I, and I really loved that. That was for me and for David Croft. He also said that Uragmidor was the cherry on his cake. And it certainly was for me. So it was a very different role, basically. Very different. Couldn't be yeah. more different, really. The difficulty was for Paul and I, at the beginning, when we made the pilot episode, we did a lot of that in a, in a, like a First World War battleground, uh, to, to, to call each other James and Alf instead of Spike and Ted, which uh, in rehearsals, you know, he came out as Spike a couple of times. Sorry, James. You know, and it was, it was automatic because we'd been doing it for eight years, you know, then we had to change over. But uh, it was a good, great, great fun, great show. Though. And how do you think the audience reacted to it? Because they got so used to you all as an ensemble cast in Heidi High, and there you were with your Lords playing different parts and things. How do they think they... What would you I think? Well, it went down really well. I think, you know, the audience were happy to see us. I mean, they've got Sue and me and Paul from, from Heidi High. They've got Michael and Donald, who were the, off, the officers from his eight half up on playing the Toffs. They've got Frank Williams, who'd been the vicar in Dad's Army, playing the bishop. They've got Bill Pertwee, who'd been Warden Hodges, who was playing the policeman. Uh, and a various uh, other company of, of, of lovely, lovely people, actors and actresses who, you know, done various other things for them. Perry Benson, who played Henry, the boot boy, he'd done an episode of Heidi High with that wonderful Poe face of his. David said, I've got to have him. I've got to have him as the boot boy. And, and that's why he cast him, you know, in Urangmalor. Brenda Cowling, who played Mrs. Lipton, the cook, she'd been in um, various uh, Dad's Armies and are you being served, David? And uh, and what a what of that Heidi High? She came up and was a camper, a lady camper who chased me around the camp. She fancied Spike and she chased me around the camp. And uh, Barbara New, of course, who played Mabel Char, she was she'd been in a, a Heidi High with Michael Robbins, who played a married couple. And uh, David loved her, and uh, you know he used her again, of course, in Doctor Beachy. Well, well, I was going. I was going to bring you to Dr. Beeching. Now, that was one of my favourites. I mean, it didn't last um, as long as the others. I think it was a couple, a couple of series, I think, Old Dr. Beeching. Two series, sadly, yes, two series, because I'll tell you what happened. Um, it was the, the mid-90s, and the BBC was going through a lot of changes in the mid-90s. Uh, and uh, the controller of BBC One, uh, oh, I won't name, because you'll probably sue me for liable, uh, he... he decided in his wisdom that he did not want any more, and I quote, any more net curtain comedy. That was it. So he axed Beeching after two series. Uh, we, we were furious. We were upset, obviously, that, you know, that we weren't going to be doing any more, but we, we were also upset that there was so much more mileage we could have got out of that programme because the characters, again, were a wonderful relationship between me and, and May, Paul, Paul Shane's wife, you know, May Skinner, uh, who, who was madly in love with her. And, uh, you know, there was all kinds of uh, 
plots we could have got out of that. But, you know, he was, the BBC had turned, turned over. It was looking at uh, things for younger people. It, you know, it was, the, it was the days of men behaving badly when that came in. It was a different style of comedy aimed at a different audience. You know, beautifully done and wonderfully played by the, the whole cast. But it was very different to the kind of stuff we'd been doing, or David Croft had been doing for 20-odd years. And that's why they, they wanted to turn around and do different stuff. New to distinct nostalgia. Dale, how the hell did I end up here? Based on a true story. What choice do you have? Tell the world that Rock Hudson is gay? You're a good-looking kid. I don't have anyone else on my books like you. How about I start to represent you? A moving 40-minute drama based on the life and career of Rock Hudson. Yes! Good boy. You just made the best decision of your life. Written by Tim Fountain and starring Michael Xavier and Betty Bourne. Rock. Rock? Strong. Masculine. Rock Fitzgerald? Matt Fitzgerald. Sounds Irish. Nebraska, Washington, Hudson. Hudson. What about Rock Hudson? Get your coat on. I'm going to introduce Rock Hudson to Hollywood. Listen here on the Distinct Nostalgia podcast or go to distinctnostalgia.com. We gotta do something about your voice, kid. We're gonna snap your vocal cords. What? Ah. Uh, louder. Ah. Uh, louder. Uh, Rock. Winner of the BBC's first ever online audio drama award. Look, Dale. I'm dying of this godforsaken disease, and pretty soon thousands, maybe millions, will die the same way. What I thought was like great about Oh Dr. Beachy, which is why I think it would have been great to have carried on, was that, and this was another good thing about all of David and, and, and Jimmy's stuff, was that that connection, authenticity, and connection with the history. Yeah. You know, this is a period, this is, you know, Dr. Beaching, and I did a documentary on it for Radio 4, which Michael Patillo presented, and there's nothing Michael Patillo doesn't know about railways, I can tell you. That's right, I love his shows, I love the shows. Yeah, he's brilliant. And we did this documentary, it's fantastic, and, um, but you, you know, not many people realise that we had a railway system that literally went everywhere at one point. You know what I mean? There were there were little little um, lines to everywhere, and every railway station had you know shops on or people selling things, and had some character to it and all the rest of it. It was a completely different world, and and I just thought it there was something special about it. And also, I suppose as a little you know as, as a the little boy in me is always fascinated with trains and railway stations and things like that. So I was really sad when it went. But of course, it, it was also based on, um, it was Richard Spenlove, wasn't it, who added yes. to it? Because he yes. he, he, his background was the, the railways. That's right. He was the youngest station master in the country at one point. He was only 23 years old, but he was a station master. And he knew about all these characters. He brought it to David and Jimmy because uh, he wanted them to write about it. David said yes, but Jimmy said no, because Jimmy didn't know anything about the railways. He didn't care for the railways, uh, uh, but he, Jimmy didn't want to write about anything he didn't know about. So he backed off, shook hands, and Richard Spenlove and David, they, they, they did it together, although Richard didn't write much of the script. We had a team of writers that we brought in to help out, you know. But that's how it started. Yeah, and I just thought, I just thought it had a little bit of magic around it, really, of an old, it was, it was painting in a... You know, world a, Brit- a world of Britain that people have, for- have forgotten, but yeah. did exist for a long time. We, all, you know, people often moan about the railways today. Oh, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, the delays, cancellations, all the rest of it. But at one point, you know, literally the whole of Britain was connected by 
mm. by train. It's amazing. Yeah. The irony of that uh, that series is that the Seven Valley Railway, where we filmed it, the Arley station, uh, our Hatley station was, was a station called Arley near Kidderminster in Worcestershire. Uh, that was a branch line that was actually cut and closed by Dr. Beachy in 1963. Now it's been taken over as a privately run railway and it's doing very well, thank you. You know, they're very busy all the time there. It's wonderful. That's the irony of the whole thing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, is it is indeed that bit, that Dr. Beaching, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. um, so looking back then, I mean, I know you've done lots of other things as well, um, but that period of, you know, Heidi High, Yurangby Lord, Dr. Beaching, that period in which you were, you were in David and Jimmy's sort of clutches, as it were, um, yes. presumably, in a way, and I ask everyone this question in most of these interviews, it's become a bit of a cliche, really. Did, did it change your life? Well, it got me on the map, yes. I mean, uh, people say that, you know, people still say Heidi High to me if they recognise me. They usually say, Heidi High, I bet you get fed up with that, don't you? And I, I usually I, I take, stop them in their tracks because I say, no, never. Because they only say it because they love the show. And they're remembering it with great affection and love and warmth. And I think that's wonderful. I'm very proud to have been a part of all those things, particularly Heidi High, because Heidi High put me on the map. You know, nobody knew who Geoffrey Holm was until that came along. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And do you all still keep in touch? All of the, those of you are still around, do you still keep in touch? I'm just um, literally pantomime with Sue last Christmas at Wolverhampton, the, the wonderful Grand Theatre there. Uh, but Sue and I are on the phone all the time, you know, during the week. We, we, talk, we talk a lot together. Uh, and uh, she can talk. She can talk. She can talk. She talks for England. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, one of the Webb twins is a, is a close friend as well, David Webb, one of the boys. We talk together a lot. Nick, Nikki Kelly, who played Sylvia, the yellow coat, she's, she lives around the corner from me. And uh, so, you know, we see a bit of her. But yes, we all keep in touch. But those of us that are still alive. Sue calls, <laughs> Sue calls us the undead. <laughs> the undead cast. <laughs> well, she's still very active, isn't she? She's busy oh, all the time, you know. Yeah, she is. <laughs> And 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 so your career now, obviously you you've got the Laurel and Hardy side of things, but you're still that's your passion, isn't it? It your, is your yes. passion project. Are you doing any other things at the moment, or is that the main I'm, focus? I'm not because the you know, the whole of the theatre business right now is closed down. You know until until such times as we can safely sit people in theatres again. When that's going to be, nobody nobody really knows. But I've still got Mr. Laurel, and I'm happy to trot that out whenever anybody wants it. You know, that's my little um, pension, if you like. It's not, it's not a huge earner for me because I play small venues with it, you know, but it's, it's, nice to be, it's nice to have it there. And it's nice to be able to you know, put, me, put my hand out and say, look, I've got to play if you want it, you know. But I, I do other stuff. I, I did, after pantomime ended before lockdown started, I was, I was still in Wolverhampton. I just played the headmaster in the production of The History Boys, Alan Bennett's History Boys, which was great, great fun to do that. Wonderful cast of people in that. So uh, that was lovely. But um, yeah, we're talking about stuff for next year, 21. And uh, although I've done Mr. Laurel at the Edinburgh Fringe three times now, 19, 20, no, 2014, 2015 and 2018, uh, I'd like to go back with it next year, but provided they do a fringe, I hope they will by next year. They should be all right by 2021, August. Uh, and I want to do it next year because it'll be 100 years next year since Oliver and, and Stanley first met and worked together. And they made their very first film, The Lucky Dog, in 1921. 
So in 2021, it'll be their hundred. So I want to make a thing of that and use it uh, and feature it. And uh, that's why I hope to go back to Edinburgh next next year. So I've got talking about a couple of things before that, if, if they come off, but nothing concrete at the moment because it's early days. That'd be good. So you played the headmaster? Yeah, I got to say the F word legitimately quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, when he has a go at Richard Griffith's character. That's right, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Several, several times, actually, throughout yeah. the play. Yeah, exactly. Well, fantastic. That, that's great. People don't expect that to come out of my mouth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeffrey, it's been lovely, lovely to talk to you, uh, to hear all about your career, and it's great that you're you're still going strong with your uh, portrayal of Stan Laurel on the stage, and we 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 all, I'm sure, all of us who's listening would love to uh, come and see that. So pray we get out of this period at some point soon. Otherwise, you'll have to do a Zoom version. Ah, <laughs> there's a thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Pleasure, Ashley. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM, and there are loads more excellent shows to listen to on our website. Danny Rogers recalls growing up with 321's Dusty Bin. So my first encounter with Dusty Bin was my dad sort of wheeling him out as a young boy. I had no clue what this thing was, and I was frightened, of course, but as it went on, I was like, oh, this is my new best friend. <laughs> and I was one of the lucky few that actually had one in their bedroom. Kathy Gorey discusses the legacy of Rosemary, the telephone operator. Hello, hello. I had an effect on a bunch of Gen Xers, or maybe I was their first female crush or something, but I meet men, some of them quite powerful now, who grew up watching me. You know, watching Rosemary rather but I thought this is nuts and they let me do pretty much what I wanted to do everything was always rhyming some you call the police department talk Hong Kong and that's that's what I thought Rosemary would sound like and John Boy himself talks about his childhood with the Waltons it was really one of the great ensemble TV shows I mean we had 11 regulars and although the story was told from John Boy's point of view one of the great things about the show was the main story could be about the little kid one week or it could be about the grandparents so you had all this wonderful generational comprehensiveness about it and so i would call it first and foremost a great ensemble these programs and many more are available at distinctnostalgia.com or wherever you get your podcasts subscribe to be notified whenever a new episode becomes available and if you like what we do then please consider supporting us on patreon every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button thank you for listening and bye for now distinct nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with life rooms and mercy care nhs foundation trust We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.